Welcome to the Oxford International Centre for Publishing Studies. For this podcast, recorded on Monday 14th of February 2011, we hear from Richard Hart, the owner of Hart Publishing, an independent academic publisher based in Oxford. The talk is introduced by Laura Rickey. Okay, hi everybody. Um, welcome to the second semester of the first uh, publishing seminar. Um, I'm really glad to see everybody, even though it's Valentine's Day, and you know, I'm sure you, you're all missing your sweethearts, but we have a really, really great speaker tonight. Um, this is Richard Hart. Um, he is the managing director of Hart Publishing, um, which is uh, good books for lawyers. So um, he started originally, he got a law degree at Cambridge, um, and um, was a lecturer for a while, and then he became an editor at Professional Books, which was the start of his book publishing career. Um, he was the law editor at OEP for a while, and he left that to form his own publishing company. Um, Heart Publishing is um, publishes good academic books and journals about law, which will enhance the study and practice of law in all of its aspects. Um, it is the largest independent academic law publisher in the UK, um, publishing over 106, over 750 titles a year. Um, and in 2009, it was awarded the Independent Publishers Guild Academic and Professional Publisher of the Year Award. So that's pretty impressive for um, Mr. Hart. And without anything else, um, I will let him speak. So I'll give him a little welcome. Um, thanks very much, Laura. That's very kind of you. Um, I'll, I'll just add to that a couple of uh, statistics about the business. Uh, it's 15 not quite 15 years old. We started, my wife and I started in 1996, and uh, we will reach 15 years of age in <coughs> September 2011. So uh, we've been doing it quite a long time now. Um, time for my kids to have grown up and to have uh, left home, gone to university, and that's uh, something I will touch on in my talk, is that the, the very personal nature of starting your own business, or it can be very personal at times, and one of the things that um, I say to people I've gained from my business, apart from uh, um, many friends and uh, 750 books, now nearly 850 books, and uh, an opportunity to, 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 to uh, employ some very interesting and able and talented people. One of the things I've really gained is that I saw a lot more of my kids than what I would have done had I stayed working for a big company. And one of the themes of, of what I will talk about is that uh, my experience has been that starting your own publishing business isn't merely a business decision, it's a, it's a lifestyle choice. It's something you choose to do because uh, you're not fundamentally cut out to work in a big business. And I discovered that having spent 10 years working in that. Um, I don't want, on the other hand, to be too personal about this because uh, if you're looking for some sort of ideas or um, inspiration yourself, you will, you'll need to know what were the practical obstacles that we faced and, and have tried to overcome. But I, you'll just have to forgive me if every now and again I lapse into anecdotal um, account of, of, of what it was like for my wife and I to, to, to do this ourselves. Um, Laura very helpfully said to me that uh, what you were looking for is, is some insight into the practical side of running a business and that's therefore what I've tried to concentrate on. Uh, one of the practical sides is that you have to learn to be an IT specialist because you have to do your own computing for many years. I had a nephew, uh, not Sam, but I had another nephew who did a lot of computing for me and he was great except he did have the habit of 
breaking things. So he would come and fix computers, and he would then, just as he was leaving, he'd break them and leave us without a computer or any sort of computers for days on end. Because he was still at school doing his GCSEs. One lesson we learned early on is you need an IT person who can come and deal with your computer issues immediately, or else do it yourselves. So we learned to do it ourselves. So really, within a f when I worked at OUP, I had a computer on my desk that I never switched on because I didn't need to, and nobody required me to. Um, but within six months of starting our own business, I could take back off a computer, I could put motherboard in, I could put memory in, I could network it. And you learn skills which you never thought you would have to learn because you thought, well, I'm, I'm a publisher, this is what this business is. But you quite quickly learn that uh, if you don't do it, nobody else is. So I think um, the point about that, I think, is that you have to have a mindset that prepares you to do things, prepares you to do the unexpected. And working in a big business will teach you a lot. And I certainly learned a huge amount working in a big publisher. I learned fantastic discipline. Uh, fantastic publishing disciplines, but it won't prepare you for the um, amount of independence that you will have to show, um, doing literally everything for yourself until you can afford to employ somebody to do it. We now employ 13 full-time members of staff, and we employ about 25 or 30 at the last count, 25 or 30 freelance people who are pretty much full-time working for us. but. Um, we don't, obviously don't count them as full-time members of staff. So you get a sense of the size of the business. Our turnover is about three million pounds a year, and we publish about 100 new titles a year. So uh, it's grown quite a lot in those 15 years, roughly a person a year in those 15 years. And in that time, I've gone from having to be able to do everything to gradually do less and less. And I, probably now in the 15th year, I'm doing what I thought I would do at the outset, which is published books. Up until now I've been doing all sorts of other things, trying to make that business run. Uh, I'm sure when you sit and think to yourself, well I want to start a company, or if any of you do think this, you'll, you'll immediately, as I was, be distracted by um, the irrelevant considerations. Well, should it be a company or a uh, partnership or a sole trading entity? What sort, of what sort of business should it be? Will I have to pay tax? Will I be VAT registered? You worry about these things because if you've never done it before, you don't know um, what's what you're facing. Um, do I need to trademark the name? Do I need to trademark the brand? You imagine that you have to do all these things. I can tell you, you don't have to worry about any of that until you've actually made some money. It's irrelevant. It doesn't matter if you're a company or a sole trader. If you can't sell some books and make some money, then you don't worry about the nature of the entity. Once you've begun to establish yourself, then you can make decisions like that. You can find accountants and financial advisors who can help you make decisions like that. The most important thing, I think, because thinking about those issues is really putting the cart before the horse. Um, what you really need to do, um, as a bare minimum, uh, to get yourself started, and this isn't, I'm actually going to go back further before this, but just to get started publishing a book. You need some ISBNs, very practical. You go away and buy some ISBNs. You go to the ISBN agency and you buy them. I think they're currently of £100 for a 1000 nice and cheap. So you can use them as quick as you like. And those ISBNs you allocate. Once you've got, a, I'm talking about very old-fashioned things called books, not um, online publishing or journals or even e-books. You just want ISBNs. 
Once you've got an ISBN, you've got the beginning of the bibliographical data for your book. You need a good piece of software. It could be an Excel spreadsheet, it could be an access database, it could be um, some uh, other forms of uh, database software. You need to be able to create, save, and amend bibliographic data because as a publisher, your life becomes dominated by bibliographic data. People want it. If you have a customer in, in Kazakhstan, what they want first of all is ISBN, author, title, price. Customer in Australia wants exactly the same information. Customer in America wants exactly the same information. And if you as a publisher can't organize yourself to have systems that can provide that bibliographical data straight away, quickly, efficiently, and in different forms, you're going to sink very quickly because in the modern publishing environment, it's not enough just to have these things written down somewhere so you can fax them off to someone else. You have to have a database. And the bigger you get, the more sophisticated you are, the more expensive will be your database. But you have to have something right at the outset to say to yourself, I'm going to save my information. Because it's that's that's gold dust in your business, is the information about your books. Um, you need to have some basic knowledge of accounting. I didn't. Uh, I didn't literally have none. Fortunately, you can buy that. By, you can buy yourself a simple, off-the-shelf accounting package. And that will normally do you for a year or two if you're starting as we did, fairly modestly. We published 10 books in our first year, 20 in our second year, and so on. If, if, if you start fairly small, a piece of accounting software will cover all your needs. You can record the invoices, you can allocate those invoices to the correct products, and so on. But very quickly, you'll find that's not adequate. Publishing is a very peculiar business, and no uh, generic accounting software, like Sage Accounting, will do the job. Because it cannot account for the many variants, the, the, art, the hardback and paperback ISBN, the different stock locations, the consignment stock in the USA, the, the warehouse stock in the UK, whatever you've got. You eventually will need more sophisticated software, but you need some basic accounting knowledge and a basic piece of software because you've got to record what you're spending. I'll talk a lot about finance later on because it was an area we were very, very weak on and didn't understand the finances of publishing, so we didn't really know um, what we were doing. We were just paying bills and we were, we were buying printing, we were buying typesetting, and we, but we hadn't much idea for the first year or two where that was all going. Um, You've got to have a very good idea of how you're going to sell. I can't uh, um, stress that enough. Um, uh, I think a lot of people start publishing businesses because they think, I'm a good editor, or I'm, I'm, I understand editing, or I have an idea for some books. Actually, not much good. You've got to be able to sell them. Um, we were fortunate in that I had a sales background prior to being an editor, uh, and my wife had been a marketing background, so we had the, a good combination in that we both had some marketing and sales background, I had some editorial background as well, so we were able to combine that. Um, even so, it hasn't been enough, and you have to learn an awful lot on the job, but we at least had a pretty clear idea of how we were going to sell our books and journals to our target market. Um, and obviously it goes without saying you need to know what your target market is. These are, very, I think, very basic things in any business plan but I can't tell you how important they are at the outset. Um, you also just need to bear in mind one thing that we completely overlooked, and that is that you need to pay author royalties, or at least, I assume, if you're publishing academic books and 
any kind of books, you're going to pay royalties. Most authors will ask for them. You'll probably have a contract that you copied from somewhere else or borrowed from somewhere else, and it'll talk about royalties. Great, the author signs it, you sign it, book published, and then two years later you suddenly think, oh, I think I'm supposed to have paid some royalties. Publishers get into a lot of difficulty over this because they don't anticipate. Again, it's an accounting thing. You just have to anticipate how you're going to account for the royalties that your authors are earning, and you've got to put those aside in a bank account, otherwise you get into very deep and difficult water very quickly. So that's something just to think about. You, you should probably also think about having a website um, quite early on. I, I don't think it's worth having a website until you've got much product and much means of selling through the website, but you should probably fairly early on think about that's something you need to have. Now I can continue with a shopping list of things that you should think about, but actually, as I said before, what I want to do is take you back a further step um, because I think everything I've said so far assumes you have a publishing idea um, and a business plan. The two things are linked. I mean, you, I assume anybody who's seriously thinking about starting a business as we would has some idea of what they want to publish, and then they're beginning to develop a business plan for that. Um, the publishing idea could be anything. It could be school books, it could be children's books, it could be uh, 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 academic books, as in our case. Uh, Work books for professionals that could be in any topic, any, 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 any sort of publishing. Most of the independent publishers I meet, and I meet hun uh, hundreds of them, uh, are doing very, very specialized things on uh, restoration, restoration of ancient buildings or uh, collecting of garden, Im uh, garden implements or um, books on, on uh, farm implements. You know, very specialized publishers who do just one field. Um, and the great thing about all the people who run them is that they all know their subject really well. So they've got a, a very clear idea about what it is they want to publish and who for. And they know who the collectors are and who the buyers are, and so they can identify the, their markets very, very clearly. Um, so you, you've got to know what your product's going to be, um, who your customers are going to be, and, uh, and how you're going to sell, sell these products to those customers. These are absolutely basic, fundamental questions. Um, I, I, I think I found many independent publishers, I come across many who um, have embarked on a business because they know a lot about one aspect of it, usually editorial. And then they've struggled and struggled and struggled to try to acquire other skills because they just don't know and maybe will never learn how to do the, the production side or the marketing side. Um, that's not to say they're not... Um, having a good go at it and, and, and some of them have, having some success but you, as I say, you have to have the idea, you have to have the plan and you've really got to then know how to put together the skills in your business to make it all work. Um, you need to know how much of it you can undertake yourself. You will have probably, as I had one, I had one maybe two skill sets in editing and sales. Um, my wife brought marketing, she also, as it turns out, brought a lot of administrative skill um, and she has ended up devising our, most of our financial systems and royalties and so on. Um, but we quite quickly had to start buying in other skills that, used, that we simply didn't have, and finance is one of those to talk about. Um, when I talk about a business plan and, and, and the idea of a business plan, it takes, uh, a, um, this was my business plan from 1986, this little folder. Um, I look at it now and it's a bit of a joke. Um, but I, uh, it's got lots of scribbled notes from me, and I remember taking it round to see various people I knew and asking them to uh, 
look at it. And most of them uh, looked at my handwritten uh, business spreadsheet and said, you'll never get finance. Because I'd filled in a sort of handwritten sheet on graph paper. I said, you'll never get finance unless you can work Excel. I didn't know how to run Excel. Um, I went to a bank with my business plan and they said to me, uh, great, come back when you've started the business and we'll look after the money for you. But there was no way they were going to lend me any. Um, I went to a small business advisory service, which I think still runs. It's, under different, it's a different name now, but uh, a local small business advisory service. They were great. They gave me, they, they listened to me for an hour and then the guy patted me on the back and said, go off, go off and do it. You'll be a great success. But he didn't actually give me any money. Um, we had, we, so the business plan I, I, I took around to people was, was literally, you know, I think I wrote it in about a day and a half and it was, it was a bit about ourselves, of who we were, um, it was a bit about the marketplace, a bit about what we thought we could do, how we could compete with the other major publishers, um, and it had some figures in it, um, and how we were going to sell, and what the costs would be, and what sort of profits we would make. Um, it also had to list my house as the main business asset because, of course, the only thing that lenders are interested in is what you can guarantee uh, to support a any loan they're going to make you. And that, that became the focus of all their interest. In fact, it was the value of my house. Um, they weren't at all interested in the business. To cut a long story short, we didn't actually raise uh, um, loan finance through any of the normal routes. The normal routes would be, I think, three. Um, one is you find yourself a friendly, uh, a friend of the family, colleague, uh, business mentor, somebody with a lot of money who's willing to lend you a large amount of money for 10 years at low interest rates, and, and who simply says, pay me back after 10 years. I, I think the chances of finding a person like that are so remote that it's probably not worth dreaming about it, but you occasionally hear about it happening. You would need to have a very, very good track record in business to persuade anyone to part with, let's say, 300 or 500,000 pounds. It's the sort of money you might need to, to start up a business. Um, so that, that source of finance, though it's a lovely one to think about, is unlikely to happen. Um, so you, banks are the second thing you think of, but as I say, my experiences with banks is that they will offer to be your banker, but they won't lend you money. Particularly if you've not done this once before successfully. What the bank is looking for is uh, that you've done something like this successfully before, sold the business, and made a lot of money. And they're also looking for the, they're also interested to know that you live in a house that you own, that they can take a mortgage on. Because that's ultimately the only, the bank's only interested in getting their money back should your business fail. So your third third option for finance, assuming you haven't got a wealthy friend and the bank uh, isn't going to you, your third option is venture capital. I'm not an expert on this. We didn't take venture capital because, uh, uh, well, I'll explain. We, we, we decided it was fundamental to us that we wouldn't. Venture capitalist will, as I understand it, you've probably been taught differently, but uh, a venture capitalist will say to you, I like that idea, that's good, I'll lend you enough money to finance your business for three years. You must then reach certain targets. Um, I want you to make so much revenue 
so much profit and uh, we'll look at the business in three years. In return for lending you that money, uh, well, giving you that money, I would like 51% of your business. And that 1% that is absolutely crucial. They want to have control of your business so that when they think the point is right, they will sell the business. So you work very hard for three years, and at the end of that, the financier says, I've had an offer for your business, I'm selling it. And in eight weeks, you've not, you're without a job. Uh, it's not a very attractive scenario. Um, it may be that the venture capitalist will instead sell their share to someone else who wants to keep the business going. But each time it gets sold, that share holding increases because you dilute your ownership of it. it. It seems to happen all the time. As you go from financier to financier, each one wants a little bit bigger share of the business for the risk they're taking. And you end up maybe 10 years down the road, having worked hard for 10 years, owning 10% of a business. And at that point, the financier says, I could double my money now. I'll, I'll get out now. They go, having doubled their money, and you're left with 10% of business that you've done everything to create. Now, if that sounds a little bit um, uh, stroppy, it's because uh, my wife and I were very stroppy at the beginning. We decided we did not want to have finance backup, financial backers for the very reason that they would control the business and they would sell it when they wanted to. And this is where I come back to where I began with the business of the, the lifestyle choice. Um, starting a business for us was not about becoming rich or about building a business that would make us a lot of money that we could then sell in order to go and live in the Bahamas. The reason for starting a business is actually that we both thought in our mid-thirties we enjoyed publishing, but we thought we'd enjoy it even more if we could make most of the decisions and do it ourselves. What were the pros and cons? Well, the cons would be we would lose our salaries. If we did, we lost our salaries as soon as we quit our jobs. Um, that's a fairly big consideration. Um, we had young children. They were, they were aged seven and four at the time. So people said, well, what about them? Aren't you jeopardizing their futures? Well, we thought, no, actually, we're probably giving them a better future because we're going to be, A, happy, uh, working in a business that we enjoyed, in control of our own lives, and therefore uh, happy around them, rather than toiling away in a big business where Certainly in my case, it was becoming increasingly a case of a square peg in a round hole and coming home from work each night. Uh, and I ne sometimes didn't know when I would come home because the meetings that we used to have would go on so interminably. Um, I mustn't get too personal now about this because <laughs> <laughs> Angus certainly knows the publisher. Well, you know, I work for OEP and sometimes there the, the meetings would literally go on all day and then you'd get to six o'clock in the evening and think, well, I've got some work to do now. I've got to read a manuscript or I've got to write to an author. And uh, it was that that drove me to it, was, was realizing that um, I wasn't very good at corporate politics. I hadn't really maneuvered myself into a, a, a good position at work. I was well paid, but I was being well paid to do something that was not good for my mental or physical health. And, and feeling that, that actually having young children growing up around that was not a good thing, that actually it was much better if we were poor but happy. Sounds corny, but that was the deal we did. So we asked our kids, uh, what would you rather? They had lots of money and we were unhappy, or not very much money and we were happy. And they said, we were happy to be, have no money, because they didn't know. But, um, <laughs> they were far too naive to understand the implications of the question. But um, 
a lot of friends then said to me, well, why did you do it? You know, how did you make that decision? Well, um, it, it, was, it was relatively easy at the end um, because um, it became very clear that uh, um, it would be better to, I, I literally would have been happy pulling pints in my local pub to pay the bills um, rather than sitting in meetings um, you know, you, you were driving me nuts. So um, it was very clear for me. My wife was actually uh, very supportive and thoughtful about this, and said, "Look, it's much better that you do something you're happy with." Um, so that was how we—that was how we formulated the, the question for ourselves. It was about independence and about having control of our lives. And therefore, the last thing we wanted was financiers. Uh, and people, when I showed them the business report, said, uh, "The business plan said." Well, get Tim Waterstone or Nigel Newton. They'll, they'll come on your board. And I just laughed at the thought of Tim Waterstone sitting at my kitchen table trying to make sense of my crazy cottage industry business. So we rapidly just pushed that idea away. Um, and that left us with the fourth option, which I haven't mentioned, but I mean, we, we didn't have a wealthy friend. We didn't have wealthy parents. The bank had turned the closed the door on us. We didn't want backers. Um, so we had the fourth option, and that is, um, uh, and I've said it a few times in public, so I don't mind saying it again, we lied to our building society and borrowed money from the building society. We, we, um, we told them we were going to build a kitchen extension that had gold taps and gold this and gold that. My father-in-law is a builder. Uh, he did us a, a, a fancy quote, and every time he sent me the quote, he faxed me the quote, and I said, can you add another thousand to that? So he kept redoing the quote. Eventually we had a, a, a quote um, for this extension and we went to a building society and said we want to build a kitchen extension. Will you let us? And they said yep. Yeah. And uh, with a heart in mouth a little bit because I'm a lawyer, trained as a lawyer, so I do understand the, the implications of telling lies um, to obtain money by deception. We always said well we will build the kitchen extension at some point. Um, and we did in the end. We just, it just took eight years to build it. But uh, we, the day the cheque arrived, um, and it did literally drop through the letterbox, I had my resignation letter written, and I went into work and handed it in, and we were free. We had £30,000 borrowed from the building society to build our kitchen extension, and that went straight in the bank. And I handed in my notice. I had three months to work out my notice, and then the day I finished, I came home plugged in my computer in our spare bedroom and started working, and that was it. So that's that's actually the reality of it, was that the, the salary went, the company car went, and the uh, security went, and I had, well, we had £30,000 in the bank. And that went in about a year. And after that, we were, uh, as my wife says, do make sure you mention to them that we live for the next five years on credit cards, which we did. Uh, those are the great days when you could take take a new credit card from this bank and they would give you zero interest if you transferred all your debt from another credit card to that one and they would let you have zero interest for six months and you have to just make sure you opened another credit card before that six months was up and you transferred it somewhere else. Um, she said, make sure you tell them about the time we went to visit friends in Cardiff and we couldn't find the money to get over the Seven Bridge. And uh, I forget these things, but it's absolutely true. We, we left the house one Friday evening to visit friends in Cardiff and we had to go around to a neighbor's house to borrow five pounds because we had no money in the bank and we couldn't get money out with our credit card. We couldn't use anything. So we had to borrow five quid until Monday morning when we could transfer a tiny amount of money from the business account to the personal account. We did live from hand to mouth for about four years. 
and, and, and we did it. I, I don't know how we did it. Uh, we borrowed some money off my mum. Uh, my dad died, and my mum said, you can have some money. Um, we borrowed that, and we paid her back after four years. So the reality for us, because we, we either couldn't obtain or spurned finance, um, is that we lived for four years, five years, accumulating debt and never quite knowing where to go. But on the other hand, um, and I get tearful when I think about it, but on the other hand, we had great holidays camping with my kids because we, we couldn't afford to do uh, to go on the Sandals beach holidays, which my daughter's friends all went on, and we couldn't afford to do all the other stuff. We, we ended up um, having camping holidays everywhere and cheap, cheap holidays. It was great, absolutely brilliant. And, you know, I, I think for me, part of a personal story of doing this is that that was all part of this business. Um, the living very simply, but enjoying our work. Um, Beverly asked me if we still work weekends. Well, we, we worked evenings and weekends for the first six months. And then we looked at each other and said, this is boring, we can't do this. Let's do it. Particularly having the office in the house meant that it was always tempting to creep upstairs. And, carry, and I did, I mean, I, I was always creeping upstairs at 5 a.m. or 11 p.m. There was always another email I had to write. And there's no doubt, we worked really, really hard six months and after that although we didn't stop working hard we continued working really in a really focused way well even to this day we don't work weekends now we don't work evenings apart from things like this um, I'm away a lot traveling but I you know I don't work in the evenings but certainly don't bring piles of work home I expect I work a lot less than some people in big companies but it's when we do work it's very focused because we don't have meetings that was rule number one when we started the business no meeting. So we, we do what we come into work to do, which is to publish. I, I acquire over 100 books a year. We acquire journals. We, we, we publish those books. We, we are very productive with a small staff. And that's because we're very focused on what we do. And we're not distracted by um, office politics and by uh, the, the exigencies of a very large business. Um, reporting within our business is easy. We just report to each other. Meetings are short and sweet and, and uh, you don't have to meet most of the time because you just share information with each other anyway. So the, these are the reasons we, we have always worked extremely hard but not very long hours, First, save for those first six months. Um, so that's finance. It took, us, it took us five or six years to overcome the uh, um, uh, sort of financial um, shortage that we had saddled ourselves with, that's, that's what we chose. By about uh, the sixth year, we were beginning to claw our way out of the sort of financial, um, I don't know how to describe it, uh, it was a sort of a um, uh, hole in the ground, and we clawed our way out of that, um, and haven't really looked back. I mean, we, we're now completely, because we remain entirely owned by myself and my wife. We, uh, and we have very little bank debt now. We have very little uh, debt of any sort. Um, so we really are, touch wood, uh, in charge of our own destinies in every, in every sense. We make the decisions, we, we run the business, and we are not beholden to anyone else for their money. And I think that, for us, is a terribly important thing because it's given us freedom um, to, to live the way we want to live and choose to, to run the business we want, the way we want to. Um, 
So that, that it comes back, as I say, I think to questions that you would have to ask yourself if you were thinking of doing this any time. What do you want out of the business? Why are you starting it? Why do you want your own business? Um, and why do you want to work in a small company environment rather than a large one? Have you thought about what that means? Have you thought about your own security and what that means to you? Uh, and who will pay your rent or your mortgage? Um, we had thought about all those things, as I say, we thought about it quite a lot. Um, understanding finance later on became quite a big challenge for us because, as I say, we, we, we started off with this small amount of money and we started doing what we thought we could do, literally commissioning authors. And I was pretty good at that. I, I, I could do that very easily, um, had quick judgment and good judgment about what to publish, so we were quite quickly publishing good books and we got a very good name for ourselves early on, got a good reputation and a good brand. So the books then began to sell and we were very um, energetic in marketing. We, this is what we said to authors at the outset and it's what we did do. We said we'll give you quick decisions, we will publish your books quickly and we'll market them energetically. We did all those things and the reason we chose those things is because those we recognized what we identified big publishers as not doing. Broadly, it's true, they don't. That's because they're big publishers and that's because they tend to work much more slowly. <coughs> if you ask most people involved in small publishing businesses, they will give you the same answer every single time. What do you do? Well, we make quick decisions, we publish books quickly, and we market them energetically. And that's what, that is what defines a lot of small independent publishers. Um, so we, we uh, were doing all that pretty well pretty quickly, in fact so quickly that our business plan said we would publish 10 books in the first year, 20 in the second. I think we published 11 in the first year and 30 in the second year. Um, and then we published 40 in the third year. And the problem that your lecturers will have, I hope, mentioned to you is, is that uh, the dangers of overheating and publishing too much are, are, are very, uh, very easy to fall into and we fell into that very quickly. Because we made a profit in our first year, made a profit in our second year, and the money seemed to be okay, but we didn't have much of it, but we seemed to be managing it. We were lulled into thinking we could expand, and we expanded quickly. And what you then discover, and we discovered this in the third year, is that, uh, uh, and nobody tells you this when you work in a big company, is that publishing, is a, academic publishing particularly, is a very slow burn business. Um, you don't tend to publish bestsellers overnight. We don't publish books that sell more than three or four thousand copies, and the majority sell five or six hundred copies. So we understood the finances of these small books and how they would sell and who we would sell them to, and we understood that if we could do it well, we would eventually make money. We didn't quite know how long it would take, nor did we understand how many we'd have to publish before the momentum of the of the business began to drive it forward. Um, and, and if you look at trade publishing, I, as I understand it, a trade publisher can publish ten books of which nine will lose money, one will make probably make all their profits. And that's because trade publishers are essentially gamblers and who, who, are, who are throwing the dice repeatedly, hoping for a successful book. It goes without saying, when, when you're operating with the sort of finances we have, you can't afford to be that um, careless with your decisions. You have to be much more... prudent and cautious, at the same time taking some risks, otherwise you're not going to develop, you're not going to grow. So we, 
of every ten books we publish, we would say, well, one will make a lot, quite a lot of money, uh, two or three might just make a little bit, but the others have all got to cover their costs. We cannot lose money on any book. Um, that's how we thought it would work, and it did broadly, but what we didn't anticipate, and I think you can't learn until you've been in that situation, is how producing and printing books sucks money and uh, sucks money into your warehouse, really. And the money sits there in the warehouse, piled up in boxes. And until you can sell those books and release that cash, your cash flow is, is, is a, a really, I mean, it's something, as I say, you just can't learn it, I don't think, in a big business unless you're working in the account accounting side because you're shielded completely from this. But we were exposed to it by about the third year. We were, we were publishing good books, they were winning awards, our authors were deliriously happy. We were a flood of authors coming to us, but we didn't appear to have any money, and we couldn't work out why we had no money. Um, and we understood our books seemed to be priced right, and we seemed to have enough margin on them, but still we could, couldn't work out. And and um, we, at that point, we took on a um, an ex. We employed a finance controller, finance who became our finance director, and he spent three months just scratching his head and looking at figures. And he had a great head for figures, and he eventually uh, worked out that we were just publishing too much. We'd overheated, and, 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 and the books were sucking money into them. Uh, sucking money in, and, and we weren't selling enough. So we had to slow down and start regulating our output. So for the next two years, we, we did something very unusual, I think, for a publishing business. We started controlling our output uh, by according to the number of pages we printed and published each year. So we would set our targets. We would say, this year we can print 15,000 pages of book. That's all. So that could be um, 15,000 page books, or it could be 30, 750 page books, or it could be 60, 325 page books. But that's all we could do. It was 15,000 pages that year. And we had to regulate ourselves that way so that we could control the cash going out to the business. Otherwise, it was unchecked. Each contract we signed, I signed uh, another £10,000, invested another £10 tied up in books in the warehouse. And you might say, well, why don't you sell more? Well, we all want to sell more. And, um, what we discovered again, I think, is that it just takes time. When you're a newcomer, the authors flock to you, but the customers don't flock to you quite as quickly. Um, authors love the idea of a new publisher on the block and you're doing something different and better than the crappy old publishers they've been dealing with for years because authors are never happy always think there's a better publisher um, so they will come to you it's natural but customers don't customers are much more cautious um, even now 15 years on we're still we still cheer quietly when uh, a big bookseller or big um, book distributor, let's say, in the Middle East or China, approaches us and says, we would like to deal with you. It's a real feather in our caps, because when they say they want to deal with you, that unlocks an entire market or a territory. And that takes years. And they literally won't deal with you because you're too small, you're a minnow, and you're not, um, you don't figure on their, their, their view of the world. It just takes years before you get So we learned really that the hard way that you have to be patient business in the academic publishing business trade publishing you probably will get your success earlier much quicker and you see that with
trade publishers who will um, take their gamble and, and, and achieve something very quickly. But um, with academic publishing, it's a long game, which is good, because all that time you build your brand, you build your reputation, and uh, you gradually, steadily acquire better books, better authors. Um, and then you wake up one day and your finance director says, uh, you know, I've noticed something interesting. Our backlist is outselling our front list. And that's when you just cheer and say, I'm another day off. Because if you've got a backlist that begins to outsell your front list, then in effect what you've got is you've got a great, you've got a great uh, moving uh, chariot of books that's driving your, book, your business forward. It's there. You don't have to acquire any more books. You can, as a commissioning editor, I can say to myself, I'm going to take the month off. I don't have to acquire any more books because this backlist is sits there in the warehouse and it's now selling. But that takes years. And we're now in the position where uh, month on month, our backlist now pays all our salaries, pays all the rent. So I don't have to publish new books anymore. I could, I could literally stop. The backlist does it all. And it's something you talk about in big businesses, you hear about and you, you, you understand something about it. You don't really appreciate the enormity of it until you're a small publisher and you, you're, the day your backlist begins to pay all the bills. Because that's all that stuff in the warehouse. that Books you published five years ago that you've forgotten about, that you, you no longer know, um, you no longer think about. But one of those sells £300 worth a year, pure profit. Another one sells £600 worth a year, pure profit. You've got 800 of them now, or in our case, we have about 700 of them. 700 books, and they're selling, let's say, 500 pounds worth each. Um, I don't know. I can't, um, can't do the maths that quickly, but I think it's probably about 350,000 pounds worth of books. Just that's why it pays the bills. But it takes that long, and takes a huge amount of, of, of publishing to get to that point. You have to publish a lot of books. Or else you um, you publish far fewer books that sell a lot more copies. But that's not my business, and I you know I don't know if you were if somebody standing here were a uh, publisher of school textbooks, they'd probably be saying, well, I publish 50 books, and each one sells a lot of copies. But that's not how academic publishing works. Um, take a sip of water and find my notes. Remember where I am in my notes. Um, yeah, come back to things like uh, um, the, the question of courage, which I, uh, when we started the business, a lot of people said to me, you're very brave, and I spent 10 years saying to them, no, it's not brave. Um, brave is, is, is what people who, um, you know, save lives in hospitals are, you know, that's what they're brave people. Just giving up a job and starting a business isn't brave, and I did honestly persuade myself for 10 years that it wasn't brave, but I now think it was quite brave. Um, brave because I think what you do, and, and in my case, this again, I'm personalizing it rather a lot, but um, you've worked for quite a long time in a big business. You set out on your own, and what you, th you think it's very depersonalized business. You think, well, I'm just publishing books, but actually, very quickly becomes personal. The disappointments and the failures are personal. 
And I think, I suspect this is true across most sorts of businesses, not just publishing businesses. When it's all of a sudden you, and you're the main representative of the business, and it's your effort that goes into it, um, the failures and disappointments are hard to take. Um, the criticism is hard to take. Uh, and that's because, it's obvious enough, but together with being in control of your destiny and taking your decisions, you're also the one who has to uh, accept absolutely all the failures of the business. The buck stops with you. So if you're going to have sleepless nights, you're going to have them in running a business. We, we fortunately only had one sleepless night in 15 years, uh, and that's when we literally ran out of money completely. But um, it was all right on Monday morning for some reason. You know, we got to work and there was some money in the bank. So. Um, I'm not quite sure to this day why things change from the Friday night to the Monday morning, but they do, because you sleep on it, or in our case, we didn't sleep. But that was only one sleepless night in 15 years. But it is, it can become very um, exposing. And as a commissioning editor, uh, I particularly um, still find, 15 years on, although it's quite a successful business now, I still find I, I am um, massively disappointed when an author chooses to go with another publisher, not with us. And I think that's probably because I'm very competitive and very uh, driven at some level to, to make things work, and also very acutely conscious of um, failure. And I don't like it. And, it, and um, in a big business, you can sort of hide. I think you can, um, at the end of the day, it's not really your, you're not accountable for an awful lot, but in a small business you are. And that's where I think the courage comes from. It's not the same courage as, as, uh, as, uh, as, as you find with people who do really brave things. But it is a sort of courage that you actually just have to knuckle down and keep going when things are not good. Um, it's not, I can tell you, I, we, we sit and watch episodes of The Apprentice with my kids sometimes, and it's nothing like The Apprentice. It's not about pitching to people. It's not about uh, inventing news was each sales techniques every day. It's actually about um, plodding on, doing the same routines, following the same disciplines, plodding on, publishing books, and trying not to be deflected. In fact, there's something else my wife said to me tonight before she said, do, do talk about how difficult it can be at times, because people want to deflect you. Um, sometimes it's criticism because one of your books gets a very bad review and you take that badly. Sometimes it's that when you're beginning to be more successful, people want a share of that and they come along and try and persuade you into other business ventures and you're flattered and you think, oh yeah, we'll do that. And you're suddenly deflected from what you should be doing, which is just plodding along publishing books. It's not glamorous a lot of the time, but it, it, it requires a sort of focus and um, does require you not to be uh, distracted by, by uh, disappointment or by other people trying to talk you into other things. Um, I'm rambling a little bit here now. Um, I'm going to wind up and let you ask questions, but I think uh, just assuming um, that you have sat down and agonised, as I did for a couple of months, about whether I wanted to take this step in my life, um, and you've had these, you know, you've considered what your motivations are, you've worked out a business plan, you've decided you could do it, you maybe couldn't, and you've worked out a source, a possible source of finance. Assuming you've done all of that, and you then get to the point where I did, sitting down in front of my computer one day and saying, right, this is day one, what do I do? 
Um, I made a note of this once, uh, and, I, and I wrote a short article for the author magazine, which they asked me to do. And I'll tell you what I wrote for them. It's slightly tongue-in-cheek, but this was what the first few weeks... I drafted a publishing contract. That took one day. Twelve years later, we're still using it. Um, we searched for and found a warehouse and a distributor. That took three days. I literally got in the car and drove to Cambridge, then to London, and then to uh, Northampton. And that was the sort of route I took to try and interviewing me. One of them, one of them claimed that we'd made an agreement, and he threatened to sue me, um, and demanded five thousand pounds damages. And uh, so I took several hundred miles in the car, three three days of meetings, and we found a distributor, and we're still with them. Um, Jane spent three days devising a system for recording royalties on Excel, um, and that, uh, I said three days, she said it took more like a month, but I think it was about three days. We found a printer, that took one hour. Finding printers is easy because they come to find you, uh, they love publishers, and we knew the printer we wanted to work with and the meeting literally took an hour, and they were brilliant, helped us through a lot in the first few years. Um, I designed and wrote a typesetting specification for our first book, and that took me a day, half of which was spent in Blackwell's bookshop, just flicking through books and saying, I like that one, I don't like that one, and trying to find in the front of the book what the typeface was. Publishers don't often tell you, but when they do, it's great, because you can go back and try and emulate it, and you can take... I took my specification to a typesetter and said, could you produce that and show me what it looks like? That was fun. That was a day. So this is in our first month. I'd written a contract and a typesetting spec, found a warehouse, didn't have any books at that stage. Um, and then we bought our accounting software. We'd done all the things that I told you you should do. Um, we managed to appoint distributors and agents for the US, Australia, Japan, and Southeast Asia. We did all of that in, the, in two months without any books. This is all just on the promise of what we were going to produce. Um, I hasten to say we sacked all of them within 12 months because the ones we, ones we first chose were no good. But that doesn't matter. And we, we, we got started. We did something. Um, I made one loss-making co-publication agreement with an academic institution. It took me two hours to make that agreement. agreement and it took us two years to get out of it. And we lost a lot of money. Silly. What we learned after a while was that I was not a very good deal-maker and that my wife should always be present when we were hiring people or making commercially sensitive business deals because I was happy to say yes to everything and she wasn't. Yeah. We, uh, we, we are still very happily working together because of that actually. But I, I'm, I'm good at the um, good at making people people feel good and saying yes well she's good at making deals. Um, I uh, talked about, talked about the, we set up a computer network after, after about three days we realized one computer wasn't enough we needed a network so hired my teenage nephew and he, he um, set up a network for us over a weekend and on a Sunday night he had to go home and just before leaving he sat on a motherboard and electrocuted himself. <laughs> cost us a thousand quid. Computers were a lot more expensive in those days. Couldn't do anything about it. Couldn't sue him because he was my nephew. So, um, so that's what we did in the first month. It was a heck of a lot. In fact a neighbour of mine who was an academic said, what I like about you is you're an action man. I thought, action man? But actually what he meant, and I think about that often, is what he meant is that we were not people who sat and, neither my wife or I sat and thought about things very often. And he was contrasting us to himself as an academic who spends his life thinking. Um, 
we absolutely were not thinkers, still to this day not a thinker. I would always do something first and then think about it afterwards. And I think that's probably one of the things we've learned about ourselves a lot is that um, in a small business you can sit and watch and think, but nothing will happen. Um, if you want anything to happen at all, that's where I started out, if you want anything to happen at all, you generally have to do it yourself until the day you can afford to employ somebody else to do it. So uh, I would leave with these, leave you with these words. I think uh, one of the prerequisites, an absolute prerequisites, is you've got to be prepared for action. And I'm happy to take questions um, from anybody about anything. Yeah, yeah, I quit. I quit, um, and uh, had to work my notice, and then, and then uh, started. Do you think it was possible to keep your job then? No. No. The nature of my job, uh, I was a commissioning editor, an acquisitions editor, and the nature of my job was that I acquired books for my publisher. And uh, had I started doing that um, for my own business as well, they would have sacked me. So there was, no, there was, it was absolutely, uh, there was nothing in my contract. I checked with a solicitor, and there was nothing in my contract to prevent me starting my own business, but it would have been a total conflict of interest if I'd attempted to do the two things together. So. Did you find yourself having to uh, get offers who were previously writing for the people you were working with? Yeah, that? that's a very good question. Um, um, well, a very good question, because I think I... I uh, wanted to. I think I'd be honest to say I wanted to because it would have it made me feel good that I could get authors from other big publishers. <laughs> I'm a good editor. And also they were people with some track record so they were more likely to be the sort of authors who might sell. But in reality um, what we found is that people were very loyal to their publishers. Um, to my annoyance they were loyal to the publisher I'd previously worked for. Um, so I had to go through the business of making them loyal to us. So actually what we did was find a lot of new authors. I mean, new authors, they weren't, they weren't necessarily um, uh, uh, complete beginners, but, but what, we what we found ourselves doing was being, we became the first choice publisher for a lot of young academics who perhaps found that the bigger publishing houses were closing the door to them. So it became a bit of a specialism of mine, and I still do it now, um, I go to a lot of conferences, academic conferences, and speak to young academics. They might be completing their PhDs or um, have just completed and they're in their first year of lecturing. And I'll talk to groups of young academics about getting published, how to do it. So it became quite a sort of uh, area that I got known for, was that I would um, encourage young authors, read their manuscripts for them, give them feedback. And that's been very successful for us because those are now 15 years on. A lot of those people who we first published are now very established academics and writing books for us that are much more saleable. So we did, in a, in a short answer, we did have to go out and find a lot of authors who hadn't previously published before because um, people were quite loyal to their existing publishers. Um, you mentioned Sort of comfort zone, which is the legal law 
to other areas and branch out that yep. way? And, yep. and if not, why not? No, I was tempted, and, 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 you, and tempted for all the wrong reasons. I mean, I was tempted by flattery. Because people said, oh, you've been so successful at what you do. Why on earth don't you do it? You could transform history publishing or politics. And you listen to that sort of flattery for a few seconds and you, um, you're lost. And I did publish one history book. It was a sort of favour for someone. It was uh, um, for an author whose um, son had written it and then died and like tragic circumstances. So he, he was having difficulty finding a publisher, so we agreed to do it. But it was a... It bombed for us. We couldn't. We didn't realise we're not really a history publisher. Um, and then we published a novel about eighteen months ago, and that's died even more chronically. <laughs> it's just died totally. The authors bought more copies than than we've managed to sell commercially. Um, I think again, you, you, when you're successful at what you do, you briefly allow yourself to be flattered to think that you can transfer these skills. And I actually think I'm very firmly a one-trick pony. I know about the market. There are plenty of books that we can still publish in our market. Um, we're not short of authors, so we've, we've sort of the lesson we've learned is stick with what we do. And, um, if we were to ever expand into doing something like politics or history, then the only answer would be to employ an experienced publisher who knows that market and to teach us how to do it. Because um, I don't think our knowledge is transfer transferable. I mean, the generic publishing skills are. But, but we're probably too old to learn. Great to see. Yeah, I think that's just about all the time we have. So thank you very much for coming. And, um